Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Greetings, and thank you for joining our podcast today. We're doing a follow-up to our Grace Notes number 90, which was called Answering Common Objections to Free Grace, Part 1. So this is Part 2, and it is our recently published Grace Notes number 91, Answering Common Objections to Free Grace, Part 2. And those Grace Notes are online at our website, gracelife.org, and they are also mailed quarterly with our quarterly newsletter, Absolutely Free, so you can get a print copy or print them off the website. And as always, they are free for your use without permission, as long as you don't sell them. And they're, they're in simple format, no more than two pages, always in black and white for easy copying. People have found this the most useful resource on our website, and it is downloaded many, many times and used all over the world. You can distribute them to classes and groups and um, Bible studies and things like that as you desire. So let's talk about some more common objections to free grace in our part two here. It just seems that God's grace is awfully hard for some people to grasp, especially when it's taught in relationship to salvation. And so we hear some objections. We covered six of them in part one, and I want to cover six more common objections to the free grace view and discuss them a little bit. So let's jump right into it with objection number seven. And it is this, free grace theology, some say, cheapens grace by not requiring commitment and good works. So the charge is that free grace theology makes grace cheap. And of course, when we understand that grace is an absolutely free gift, we understand that it cannot be cheap or costly. It is absolutely and unconditionally free. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 3.24, which says, justified freely by his grace. Freely by his grace. There's a redundancy in Paul's terms there to emphasize the freeness of God's grace. And Romans 11.6 also says, and if by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. It's kind of a tongue twister, but it's simply saying, that grace and works are mutually exclusive, and any time you attach any kind of work or condition to grace, it ceases to be grace. So grace cannot be cheap, or costly for that matter, because a free gift is always free to the one who receives it. It may be costly to the giver, or maybe if he's a cheap giver, cheap to him. But God gave us the gift of eternal life because he paid the price of his son. You see, the rest of verse 324 in Romans says that uh, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that word redemption speaks of a price that was paid. And that price that was paid was God's own son dying on the cross for us. The term costly grace seems to have come from or been popularized by Dietrich Bonhoeffer during the Nazi period of World War II, and people, I think, misunderstand it in the historical context where he was, 
he was trying to get the church to stand up against Hitler and to to live out their faith. And so he used this word costly grace and cheap grace or the cost of discipleship, the name of his book. But I don't think it's in the same context as we're using it today in our question about salvation. So free grace theology doesn't cheapen grace because grace is absolutely free. That's just a misunderstanding of grace. And then also in this objection, we would say that requiring commitment and good works at the front end or at the back end of the gospel is contrary to grace, which makes no demands. So when we say at the front end, we mean as a condition for salvation, there is no commitment or promise or obedience necessary except to believe the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So that's at the front end of the gospel. At the back end of the gospel, some people like to put works to say that if you don't have works, it proves you were never saved. So works proves your salvation. But of course, we know that the only basis for our full assurance of salvation is the promise of God in the scriptures, not our human performance. So we would say that grace is not cheapened because uh, works are not important in order to be saved or to prove our salvation. It is all a gift of God. And then, though grace does not demand commitment and good works, it motivates and teaches us to live godly lives. When we understand grace, and when a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and understands what has happened in that transaction and the price that God has paid, then that grace should motivate and teach that person to live a godly life. It's not guaranteed. That's why we have all the commands in the New Testament. If it was guaranteed, we wouldn't need the commands. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. You see, by the mercies of God, Paul is reminding them of his discussion in Romans chapter 1 through 11, where he talks about what God has done for them in his grace. The book of Romans uses grace 28 times more than any other, any other time in the New Testament, any other book. And he doesn't tell us what to do until chapter 12, after he explains what grace does. Because he expects discipleship or offering our bodies as living sacrifices to be a response to the grace that he's explained. Likewise, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where he tells us that we're saved by grace through faith, and that's not of ourselves, not by works, lest anyone should boast, that we may walk, that we should walk in those good works. God has purposed and created us in Christ Jesus that we should do good works, not guaranteed, but that we should do good works. So there's nothing wrong with works, but they come after salvation, not before salvation. They're a consequence of salvation, not a condition for salvation. They're a result of salvation, not a requirement for salvation. Another key verse is from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, with 13 also, 14, which says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And it goes on to talk about looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the point in verse 12, 11 and 12 especially, is that the grace of God appears and brings salvation, and it teaches us, it trains us, the word literally means, that we should deny an ungodly life and live a godly life. And so grace doesn't demand commitment and good works up front 
But when a person experiences grace and it teaches them, they can live a godly life. So the gospel of grace also is about eternal salvation provided by Jesus Christ's work. Discipleship in the Christian life is about our commitment and good works. So when we say, when the objection is made that free grace theology cheapens grace by not requiring commitment and good works, we point out to the fact that our salvation is provided by Jesus Christ's work. Our work has nothing to do with earning or obtaining salvation. That is contrary to the scriptures, as clear as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 can make it. It's as simple as this, as I always tell people. Salvation is about what Christ has done, not what we can do. Every other religion in the world practices the religion of you must do something. But Christianity is the only religion, if you want to call it that, that says it has all been done for you. It has been provided for us. That's why we don't need to require good works and commitment for salvation. Because Christ has done everything necessary to secure our salvation. And for us to try to add anything to that is essentially to insult what God has done and say he has not done enough. We also would say that free grace distinguishes sanctification from justification, which is, I think, a failure of those who make this charge. They don't understand there's a distinction between salvation and discipleship or sanctification and justification. And many verses are confused where, they, where these two theological concepts are conflated into one. And that's why I wrote my book, Grace, Salvation, and Discipleship, to show how these verses can be understood in the context as not saying that those things at all, which, because if you bring sanctification into justification, you're immediately polluting the pure gospel of grace with works in human performance. So objection number seven is not a valid objection. Free grace theology does not cheapen grace. Free grace theology keeps grace absolutely free. Let's go on to objection number eight. And it is this. Free grace teaches that faith is merely mental assent. In other words, some, some talk about, oh, you just, anybody who says they're a Christian or says they believe in Jesus is, can be saved. Anybody who simply makes a decision or walks forward in a church or responds to an invitation is saved. Free grace doesn't claim that. Free grace only claims that a person who believes in Jesus Christ as Savior is saved. It's not what they say. It's not what they, they physically do or any prayer that they pray. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this charge by some people like Wayne Grudem and John MacArthur that Free grace teaches that faith is merely mental assent. Uh, well, there are some free grace people who say that faith is only mental assent. There's some discussion in the free grace camp about this. But they have pictured it incorrectly as more of a decisionism and just a simply say-so profession, not really understanding or caring to understand what we mean when we say believe. Some free grace proponents teach it, but not all do. And it is a, a bit of a discussion. 
Now, obviously, if someone believes a propositional truth, there is a mental agreement to it. So part of believing has to be mental agreement. We have to process things through our mind, the facts that are presented to us. And, but then we have to respond to those facts, and that's where the rub comes in. And that response is called belief. Now, I personally believe that the offer of salvation sometimes emphasizes mental assent in the scriptures, while at other times it appeals to the will also. For example, uh, John 4:10, Jesus answers the woman at the well and says to her, if you knew the gift of God, there's mental assent, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. That seems to be an act of the will. You'd be willing to ask him for that living water. Um, or in chapter 6, verse 69, when uh, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, we, or Peter answers him when he asks him, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You can't escape the fact that belief is mental assent, at least that. And sometimes that is all that is necessary is for a person to be convinced, assuming that a person is open to and searching for the truth. John 8, 24, uh, Jesus said, to the Pharisees, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They needed to believe that Jesus was who he says he was. And that would have taken mental assent, surely. There are other times where obedience to a commandment, which would involve the will, seems to be the emphasis. As in 1 John 3.23 which says, where John writes, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. This is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So there you have an emphasis on obeying his command. And there are other places in the scripture as well. Jesus talks about them not willing, Israel not willing to come to him, for example. So is Mental assent, part of faith? Absolutely. Is the will part of faith? That can be debated, but it seems that sometimes it is. And I think the problem we get into is when we try to psychologize from a Western model and dissect what faith is, whereas to a person who's confronted with the claims and the person of Jesus Christ didn't break it down into what they were, uh, how they were responding and what kind of response it was. They simply believed something. And you either believe something or you don't. And you're either convinced at the level of your mind or at the level of your will, uh, I think. But a person just needs to appropriate and the offer of salvation that they, that they see and understand. So free grace doesn't teach that faith is merely someone who says that they are a Christian or says that they believe that Jesus is their Savior, what does that mean to them is, is what we need to know. So it's a bit of an empty charge, and, and they tend to characterize the free grace view uh, without uh, much accuracy. So, objection number nine, free grace is antinomian. We often hear this charge from those of a more Calvinistic leaning who claim that the moral law is still in force, 
and that free grace says that you can do anything that you want. It gives you a license to sin, and it dismisses the moral law of God. Now, Paul answered this objection roundly in Romans chapter 6, and you can look there at where he anticipates the objection when he teaches about how grace is abundant and uh, can, nobody can outsend God's grace in Romans 5, 19 and 20. And then in chapter 6, he anticipates the objection so we can sin and do whatever we want to if we're not under the law but under grace. Well, let's talk about that. Paul was arguing against the, antinom- the charge of antinomianism. But the word antinomian literally means no law or without law. So we have to define what law is in view. If it's the Mosaic law we're talking about, well, yes, free grace teaches that Christians are not under the Mosaic law. We're not under that law any longer. Very clear in Romans chapter 6, 14, where Paul says we're under grace, not under the law. Romans chapter 7, 4. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christians are dead to the law. Now, that doesn't mean that free grace teaches license because the New Testament says believers are under a new code, and that code is called sometimes the royal law, James 2.8, the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2, or new commandment, which Jesus gave in John 13.34 and 1 John 3.18. And these are commands to love one another. And so Galatians 5.14 teaches that when we keep the command to love one another, the royal law, the law of Christ, we, in essence, fulfill the essence of the Mosaic law. Galatians 5.14 says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, is free grace antinomian? If you're talking about being without the Mosaic law, yes it is. But is it without any kind of system or coded morality? No, it is not. We have a new law or a new code in Christ, but it is not the old Mosaic law. So contrary to teaching lawlessness, free grace teaches responsibility and accountability and consequences of divine discipline for those Christians who would go astray. We teach that every Christian will be, must be responsible for his actions and will be held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ, a very prominent doctrine in the New Testament. And they can also be disciplined in this life, as Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 teaches, as a father would chastise or discipline his son, so God would discipline us, and that's a proof of his love. So we are responsible, we are accountable, we are not in any sense lawless in the sense of being licentious as sometimes it is charge free grace teaches. That is a very false and misleading charge, misinformed as well. Now, objection number 10 goes like this. Free grace believes a person can apostatize or fall away from the Christian faith and still be saved. Well, first, we need to try to understand and determine whether the person that, we're, that is in view understood and believed the biblical gospel. It's possible that some people who fall away from the Christian faith or appear to completely reject the Christian faith, it's possible they were just professing Christians and never were saved. So we always have to hold out for that possibility because it is true sometimes. However, the scripture has examples of believers who fell away from the faith 
with no evidence that they were never saved or lost their salvation. For example, Solomon. Solomon, at the end of his life, married all these women and became an idolater. And yet he wrote books of scripture and he was a descendant of David and he was uh, in, in many ways favored by God. It is very difficult to prove that he lost or never had salvation. And then in the New Testament, you have a number of examples like Ananias and Sapphira who lied, obviously wrong, but they were immediately disciplined with physical death. Or Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy uh, who shipwrecked their faith. And there, there were others who loved this world uh, and, and, and deserted Paul. Many examples of those who fell away from the faith and never any evidence that they were never saved. And I wrote a grace notes on this, number 55, called The Christian and Apostasy, which you can look up on the website, grace notes number 55. You also have to deal with the book of Hebrews, which warns of severe consequences for believers who fall away from the faith. Now, some people interpret Hebrews differently and think that it's a book that is warning non-Christians that they need to believe. When I reject that interpretation, see my grace notes number 15, on interpreting Hebrews, beginning with the readers. When you look at the readers of Hebrews, you'll see that they're definitely Christians. They were in danger of turning back to Judaism and falling away from the Christian faith. And the book of Hebrews gives five severe warnings to those who would neglect their faith or fall away from their faith. And those warnings involve perhaps temporal judgments in this life that are very severe, as well as a loss of reward in the future life. So, another response to this objection that um, we say a Christian can apostatize and fall away from the faith and still be saved is that grace covers every sin. And apostasy is a terrible sin. Rejecting Jesus Christ after knowing him is a terrible sin, but it is a possibility. But the grace of God covers every sin. And the scriptures teach in Romans chapter 5 that where grace abounded, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. If salvation can't be earned by what, what we do and what we don't do, it can't be lost by what we do or don't do. And even if no one, someone no longer believes, the scriptures teach that God is faithful to his promise to save us. God is not a liar. He cannot deny himself. And even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, 2 Timothy 2.13. And that, that is spoken in the context of our salvation. So when we are faithful or unbelieving, when we cease to believe, God is still faithful to his promises. He can't deny himself. So we do not teach that a person who falls away from the church, falls away from the faith, falls away from Christ, loses their salvation or never was saved. We hold out the possibility that perhaps they were never saved. Um, but we believe that free grace theology teaches that no sin is too great for, for God's grace. And even if someone were to not deny the faith, that they could remain saved. They will remain saved if they were saved to begin with. Now on to objection number 11. Free grace is a recent historical and theological aberration. This charge is sometimes made uh, and I think Wayne Grudem makes this in his book against the free grace theology. But 
Is it a recent historical theological aberration? You know, salvation by God's free grace has always been taught by the timeless scriptures. So, the free grace of God has always been there. There's, there's nothing new there. And another fact is that no one has ever been saved apart from God's free grace. It's a simple fact that no one has ever been saved apart from God's free grace. Even someone who makes this charge, like Wayne Grudem, Dr. Wayne Grudem, still admits that the gospel that free grace teaches will save people. I think his main issue is with the idea of assurance. But we need to understand and realize that grace as a free unconditional God, a free unconditional gift of God, has been controversial since the very beginning of the church. And we see this in the legalist's opposition to the Apostle Paul. Wherever he went, he was contradicted by those who wanted him and others to keep the law and, and uh, keep festivals and eat foods and so forth. It was very hard for, for them to accept the unconditional grace of God that the Apostle Paul taught in his gospel. So it's been controversial since the beginning of the church. It just hasn't always been under the uh, terminology of free grace. But the issue of sal works and salvation and works and assurance have always been a controversy from the very beginning. And I think we also need to understand, even though the reformers in the 16th century did us a great favor by, dis by rediscovering the truth of justification through faith, that didn't end the discussion of the gospel. We need to realize that they were developing in their thinking and they were debating with one another, and they were disagreeing with one another to some great degree. They put us on the right track, but they began the discussion of justification through faith and the grounds for assurance, and that discussion continues to this day. There was no end point for the Reformation that I know of. There's no time I know that someone declared, or, any, or that the church declared, that the Reformation is over, we've now got it all figured out. We're still working through these discussions about justification through faith and the grounds for assurance today. And what we're trying to say is in free grace theology is that we're saved absolutely freely by his grace and on the basis of God's promise and word and our faith in that, we can be sure that we're saved. It's nothing, there's nothing new about that controversy. It's a perpetual controversy since the beginning of the church it's just had different names to it. I came across an interesting book and read it not long ago. And it's about a trial in the 1630s in uh, the Massachusetts colony at the very establishment in the beginning of our country, the United States of America. The book is called uh, Making Heretics, subtitled Militant Protestantism and Free Grace in Massachusetts, 1636-1641. It's written by Michael P. Winship, published by Princeton University Press in 2002. But it's, the interesting thing about this book is that a controversy arose about how someone could know for sure that they're saved. And there were uh, some, some, like John Cotton, who was one of the main central characters in this, who maintain that we're saved through faith and not by our works or performance and that we can know that we're saved because of our faith in Christ. And uh, there were others involved in the controversy. Some were more controversial. 
But that was what was on trial and actually involved all of the politics and the governors at the time. And uh, it was not just a religious thing because everything was religious there right down into the government. And so it caused splits in the church and splits in, in the politics. And it's quite a controversy, quite an interesting read. But the point is, is that that was back in the 1630s, and they were using the term the free grace there uh, to describe the view that a person can be saved and assured through faith. So even though uh, historical trends can be informative in this discussion of free grace theology, the final verdict of truth is always the scriptures. We don't appeal to history or creeds, but we appeal to the scriptures to build our theology. The final objection, number 12, I wish it was the final objection. It'll be our final objection in the podcast. Objection number 12 says the free grace movement is an irrelevant minority movement. And that is a charge, I think, made by Wayne Grudem in his book again. Is free grace an irrelevant minority movement? Well, it may be a minority movement, granted, but isn't that always part and partial of most movements? That they kind of start small and then they, they grow? Um, certainly that was true of the Reformation movement. And if it's so irrelevant, why are some prominent theologians, like probably the world's leading theologian at the moment, Wayne Grudem, attacking? free grace theology. Well, I happen to know the reason he is is because it was growing in such popularity in, in the school where he is and in the area where he lives and throughout the country that uh, people were asking him to respond to it. And so he responded with a book against it. And that's not because we're irrelevant and minority. It's because we're growing in our influence and people are understanding what the scriptures teach. So why would they even think it's necessary uh, to respond to it if the free grace movement is irrelevant? Doesn't that attest to really the growing influence of the free grace message? To the contrary, I would say there's a lot of evidence that the free grace movement is having a great influence around the world. The Free Grace Alliance was started in 2004 and it has grown to be a substantial movement with members around the world. There are schools aligning with Free Grace Theology, and uh, there are many more books coming out um, because of more Free Grace-oriented publishers, which has not been the fact in the past. And so we're seeing a good proliferation of information on the Free Grace message, which is good. And I've been around the world quite a few times, and this is what I teach, and I see it catching on when you under when people understand what the scriptures are teaching, especially like in Romans and Galatians, uh, they, uh, they rejoice and their hearts are set free and they don't want to turn back to the legalism that they've been preaching and trying to practice with total frustration. So I see the grace movement growing around the world and really, really taking hold in some countries very strongly. Well, what do we say in conclusion? First of all, the final verdict on any theological system has to be an accurate interpretation of Scripture. And many objections like we have heard to free grace come from poor interpretations of the Bible. People who just aren't doing good Bible study. And usually that is due to a lack of attention to the context. 
the context will help us understand some difficult or controversial passage, passages. The Bible is its own best interpreter. And so we have to not be lazy, do our own interpretation using the context, not just echoing what other people are saying. And then if you're going to criticize something, understand what that view is teaching. And many people who object to free grace teaching just don't understand what is really being said. I've seen that over and over again when reading their material and even trying to correct them. It is hard to get them to see what we are really teaching. And then many just resort to rhetorical canards and, and parroting the things that they hear from others. And that's, those are just empty criticisms that shouldn't be taken seriously. Let's do our study and interpret the scripture accurately. The truth is that free grace exalts the God of all grace. It exalts the Lordship of Jesus Christ because he's Lord, he could save us. And when we're saved, we should serve him as Lord. And it exalts the total sufficiency of Christ's work on behalf of everyone. It is finished, he said, and we say amen. Only a proper understanding of God's grace and salvation can give people that full assurance of salvation that they need to grow and love God and grow in grace and the confidence to share a gospel of assurance with other people. Well, as always, I want to thank you for joining us today as we looked at some more objections to free grace theology, and I look forward to seeing you again. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.